This time it is my joy to invite you to open a Bible to the Gospel according to Luke. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 11, beginning in verse 14. And if you wanted to use one of those red Bibles from underneath the seat in front of you, this morning's sermon text is found beginning on page 869 in the red Bibles, page 869. So that's Luke chapter 11, beginning in verse 14. And if you don't mind, I think we'll just forego the introduction head directly for today's big idea because it matters and I don't want to bury my lead today. Here's the big idea today. You can be for him or you can be against him, but King Jesus allows no neutrality in your allegiance to him. Say that again. You can be for him, you can be against him. But you can't stand in the middle of the road. Jesus allows no neutrality in your allegiance to him. This morning we have three points, and each of them are drawn from the passage in front of them and in front of us, and each of them are are intimately related to this, this big idea. This big idea that you can be for him, you can be against him, but King Jesus allows no neutrality in your allegiance to him. I hope if you're listening closely today, uh, even just to the big idea so far, that you're already examining your heart. And you're already thinking what it might look like if your life were to slip into neutral with reference to the lordship of Jesus. Because understand this, if the passage before us communicates anything, it is crystal clear that neutrality, indifference, a sort of cool, dispassionate approach, unconcerned, uh, detached from who Jesus is, what he's done, what he demands of the world, that sort of approach is nothing more than spiritual suicide. Nothing less than spiritual suicide, I should say. Now, maybe that you're with us today and you are not a Christian. You are examining the claims of Jesus Christ. You're kicking the tires of the faith, and you need to know how glad we are that you're here. You are in a safe place to hear dangerous truth this morning, and we are thankful for your presence with us. It may be that you're with us today and you're a follower of Jesus. Heck, maybe you're a covenant member of this church. And yet there's that, that one area of your life, that one aspect of private rebellion that you haven't entrusted to Him, that one area that you hesitate to surrender to Him. Well, to you as well, I think this passage speaks Because you can be for him, you can be against him, but King Jesus allows no neutrality in your allegiance to him. Let's begin with the first of three points today. Number one, if you are not prepared to idolize Jesus, you must be prepared to demonize him. If you are not prepared to idolize Jesus, you must be prepared to demonize him. Would you look with me at the Gospel of Luke, chapter 11, verses 14 to 23. Luke's Gospel, chapter 11, 14 to 23. Now, he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. 
And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. If you are not prepared to idolize Jesus, you must be prepared to demonize him. Now, why would we start point one by saying something that inflammatory? What are we trying to do here? The answer is that all we're after here is the burden of the Holy Spirit behind this particular passage. We want the content and intent of passages of Scripture to be the content and intent of any sermon, right? So we read in verse 1, verse 14, Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled. Here we are, we're 11 chapters deep into Luke's gospel. And if we've learned anything to this point, we've learned that Jesus has both the inclination and the ability to do battle with the devil himself. And if you were to ask why, I think the answer is essentially found in the truth that Jesus is the rightful owner and the landlord of every human soul. And when the devil elects to become a squatter, or an illegal tenant there, Jesus is frequently bent on tossing him out on his ear. Just about any chance he gets. 17th century church leader John Boys, who was at one time the dean of Canterbury, recorded four wonderful reflections along these lines. Listen to this. Four reasons John Boys gives for Jesus' propensity for casting out demons. Number one, Jesus casts out demons from the house of the human soul because the devil does not pay rent on God's house. Number two, Jesus casts out demons from the house of the human soul because the devil allows God's property to decay. Number three, Jesus casts out demons from the house of the human soul because the devil employs God's property for base uses, inappropriate, rebellious uses. And number four, Jesus casts out demons from the house of the human soul because God himself desires to dwell in it. Isn't that helpful? That's why he does it. That's why Jesus casts out demons. Now, the, Jesus' work of casting out demons, in particular in this case, elicits two different responses. Do you see it? In verse 14, as we read, it says, When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. I think that's just the general response of the crowd. But inside of the crowd, you have these two subgroups. The first reaction we read about is in verse 15. But some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. And then there's a second group that he mentions only briefly in verse 16. He says, While others, to test him, kept seeking a sign from him, a sign from heaven. Now, the second group, I think Jesus takes on in verse 29, and that's the first verse in next week's text. So we'll leave that group alone for today. Let's just put a full court press on the first group, which is where the rest of verses 17 to 23 concentrate. 
I lost my place. Isn't that terrible? All right, there it is. I'm so well organized that I lost my place. Verse 15 says, some of them, uh, some of them say, he casts out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. I, I'm just curious. How many of you have ever wondered, what is that? Beelzebub. It's a weird name. It's fun to say, but it's a weird name. Beelzebub. That sounds vaguely familiar, maybe. If it's familiar to you, it may well be because you may know this. It's rooted in the name of the ancient Canaanite god Baal. Baal in the Old Testament. Beelzebul in the New Testament. Well, here in verse 15, it's clear that regardless of the ancient origin of the name, it is a first century way of referring to Satan himself. Because they speak of Beelzebul, the prince of demons. And furthermore, Jesus' interaction with these guys makes it very clear that he regarded the term Beelzebul to be a synonym for Satan as well. So they watch him exercise this demon. They, they cannot contradict what he has done. Jesus has done it time and again in Luke's gospel. They can't contradict what he's done. That's not in the cards. But they do try to reinterpret what he's done. That's the only game in town at this point. And so they say, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. So in other words, they aren't prepared to idolize Jesus. And so the only options left is to demonize him. And frankly, I'll tell you, while this is a losing position, it's a position that they're forced to take, and I might even say I respect their consistency on one level. They know what's on the line here. If Jesus is not truly the Messiah of the Jewish people, he's a pretender to the throne. These men know precisely what follows if Jesus is not empowered by God himself because the power is simply otherworldly. They can't deny what's been done here. So if this raw display of supernatural force doesn't proceed from something incredibly holy, then it stands to reason that it springs from something undeniably evil. They see Jesus' mighty works. And either way, they are fearful. They are feeling threatened. And so they say something that although it has a certain amount of consistency to it, it's also totally irrational, not to mention completely impossible. And Jesus calls them on it, right? Verses 17 to 23 uh, report, But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. The divided household falls. And if Satan's also divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. I just want to hold up here and make a comment on that last verse, verse 19. When he says, if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. It might be that he's referring to various Jewish exorcists that would have been ministering in Jesus' day throughout the uh, nation of Israel. That's possible. But I think that Jesus is speaking of 12 Jewish exorcists in particular, namely the ones that he commissioned to that mission back in chapter 9. I think that's why he says, they will be your judges Jesus tells the twelve as much in Matthew 19.28. Listen to Matthew 19.28. We read that Jesus said to the twelve, Truly I say to you, in the new world, in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, 
you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So the 12 disciples, minus Judas, do fit the description of what Jesus is talking about in verse 19. Then the rest of the words in of Jesus in 20 to 22. He says, but if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than him attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Here we have the housing language again, don't we? And the strong man is Satan. The palace is a human being. And the one stronger than he is Jesus. This is what Jesus does. Jesus overpowers the evil one. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And it can't be that Jesus casts out demons by the prince of demons. If that were the case, the devil himself would be turning on his own army. An army where the general turns on him doesn't last very long. No, Jesus casts out demons by the only power strong enough, and that would be God Himself. He calls it the finger of God. We might even say the power of the Holy Spirit would be a synonym here. And then in verse 23, we hear Jesus give us the operative phrase here. Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. In other words, you can be for Him, you can be against Him. King Jesus allows no neutrality in your allegiance to him. In the book of Hebrews, the author proclaims in chapter 1, verse 3, that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. In Colossians 1.15, the apostle Paul tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. That word image, that, that original Greek word there is icon. Jesus is the icon. He's the idol. He's the visible representation of the invisible God. Do you idolize him if you get my drift? Do you admire and adore and bow down to and reverence and venerate and worship him? As we said earlier today, it may be that you're here with us today and you're wondering what it might look like for you to begin to follow Jesus. Well, this is it. It's worship. It's, it's to prostrate your entire life before Him, turning from your sin and putting the full weight of your trust on Him for the life that He's lived for you in your place, for the death that He died on the cross in your place, absorbing the penalty that you and I deserve turning from all known sin and turning toward Christ and trusting in His indestructible resurrection power to empower you into the days ahead. As C.S. Lewis said, you can shut Him up for a fool. You can spit at Him and call Him a demon. Or you can fall at His feet and call Him Lord. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about His being a great teacher. He hasn't left that open to us. He never intended to. If you are not prepared to idolize Jesus, you must be prepared to demonize Him. Second point today. Beware the very real danger of experiencing the power of God without exalting in the person of Christ. Beware the very real danger of experiencing the power of God without exalting in the person of Christ. 
Now, in verses 24 to 26, Jesus is still teaching. He's addressing the same group of people that said he was doing what he did by the power of Satan. And by the way, not for nothing, that's the unpardonable sin. That is the unpardonable sin. Parallel passages in Mark chapter 3, Matthew chapter 12 make this plain as day. Just in case you're wondering, the unpardonable sin, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, it occurs when you attribute the work of God to the work of Satan. I'll say that again. The unpardonable sin, the unforgivable sin, sometimes called blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, it's attributing the work of God to the work of Satan. Mark chapter 3, Matthew chapter 12. Parallel passages unfold that for us. And that's it. Lots of folks in the church have wondered at one point or another in their lives whether or not they've committed the unpardonable sin. And I think you can pretty well take it to the bank. If you're concerned that you've committed the unforgivable sin, you probably haven't. Not if you're concerned about it. Now here in verses 24 to 26, Jesus says some semi-cryptic things, but I think we can cut through it. In fact, just in case your head is spinning as I read these verses, allow me to share with you a, a praise report, as we say. Um, beginning last week, I copied, out verses tw- I copied out the whole passage, but verses 24 to 26 on one of my note sheet, and I wrote across the top of it, I have no idea what verses 24 to 26 mean. I have no idea. And I dated it, and I did a time stamp on it so that once the Lord helped me figure it out, that I could praise Him for it. And it took a few days. I mean, I've read these verses repeatedly for almost 20 years. What about you? You got, you got 24 to 26 all figured out? This text, if you're prayerful, if you listen, if you compare Scripture with Scripture, this text will yield for you. And what made little to no sense to me at the start of the week began to make increasing sense to me toward the end of the week. So take heart. Let's read 24 to 26. Jesus says, still speaking Jesus here, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. Everybody got it? I wish this didn't seem so impenetrable because what Jesus is saying here is huge. And when you begin to connect it, you're going to see in just a second what this is if you don't already see it. And you're going to see how it connects with the rest of what the New Testament says and this thing goes electric. So verse 24. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, finding none. It says, I will return to my house from which I came. What does that mean? Let's just take it phrase by phrase. First, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, okay, in context, that can only mean one thing. It's, it's exorcism. It's the casting out of a demon. In context, it can only refer to that. In view of the broader context, this is an exorcism, casting out of a demon from a human being. Then Jesus says, upon being cast out, the demon passes through waterless places seeking rest. Now, that's a difficult phrase. But I think if we compare it to what we've already read in Luke chapter 4, back in Luke chapter 8, it seems that dry, arid, desert, waterless places were common haunts for demons. Maybe they still are today. Think of the temptation of Jesus. 
Think of the Gerasene demoniac, both of which happened in desert places, waterless places. And then verse 24 says that finding no rest, finding no host, no person to engage or to inhabit, the demon says, I will return to my house from which I came. Now, this line is fairly self-evident in view of what we've already learned about the housing of demons to this point. My house in this verse is the person from whom he was cast out. He wants to go home. And then verse 25 says, when it comes, when the demon comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Again, a difficult verse, but in view of the verses that surround it, it seems clear enough that the, this is a person, this is reference to the person from whom the demon has been previously cast out. There's no demon indwelling at the moment, but notice this, neither has anything else, or may I say anyone else, capital O, come to dwell either. New Testament scholar Daryl Bach says this, the house pictures a man's condition. The man or the woman is living but is spiritually empty. He or she is ready to host some kind of guest. The verse does not teach the inevitability of the spirit's return but the result of what happens if it returns. And then Bach concludes with this, there is great risk and not being already occupied by the protecting presence of God that comes with faith. Okay, that makes sense to me. While the demon is cast out, Christ was never welcomed in in the meantime. And then the painful result is outlined by Jesus in verse 26. Verse 26, Jesus says, Then it goes, and it brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter, and they dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. In other words, better to have never known demonic deliverance than to have experienced such a gracious display of God's power and not come into a living relationship with Jesus in the meantime. So it's an obscure parable, I grant that, but it's not an inscrutable one. This is, this is scrutable, okay? <laughs> this is understandable. We can get this. Once it lands on you, the force of what Jesus is saying here will dog you, especially if you're a believer. The point of verses 24 to 26 is to beware the very real danger of experiencing the power of God without exalting in the person of Christ. You say, how often does that really happen? My answer, all the time. More frequently than you might imagine. Puritan pastor Matthew Henry, it happened in his day, Henry writes it this way, it's 1714, by the way, he wrote this, hypocrisy is the high road to apostasy. If the heart remains in the interest of sin and Satan, where the secret haunts of sin are kept up under the cloak of a visible profession of faith, the conscience is debauched. And God is provoked to withdraw His restraining grace. And the closed hypocrite commonly proves an open apostate. One who has denied the faith altogether. That's frightening, friends. And you say, well, I, I thought the Bible teaches that all true born-again Christians persevere to glory. And the answer, of course, is it does teach that. Unequivocally, the Bible teaches that. 
But just because we claim the promises doesn't mean we ought not heed the warnings. Amen? So on the one hand, Scripture plainly teaches the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. There are plenty of places to see it, but I would just turn us to one. Romans 8, 29 to 30 is clear enough. It's what sometimes we call the golden chain of salvation. Romans 8, 29 to 30, For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. No dropouts anywhere in that chain. None. If you're a Christian, you need to claim a promise like that. On the other hand, if you are a Christian, if you're the real deal, then you will heed the warnings. Warnings like Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 to 14, which pleads, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you, me, an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. Exhort one another, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. That's a big if. The reverse is true too. If indeed we do not hold our original confidence firm to the end, we have not come to share in Christ. Now, for our homework, along with this point, we all ought to go home and read all of the warning passages of Hebrews back to back to back. I mean, if you believe sort of once saved, always saved, I, I do. I don't think that's a great way to put it. I think the Bible would talk more in terms of if you have been born again, you will persevere to the end and make it to glory. Um, but if you believe that, if you believe that, then you should run the gauntlet of Hebrews just to see if your doctrine of perseverance can make it through. Chapter 3, yes, but chapter 6, chapter 10, chapter 12, they're all there in your, your sermon notes. Now, I think it can. But, in fact, what we learn as we heed the warnings is that that is a significant means of our perseverance. If you are not warnable, you are in serious trouble. But if you are warnable, that's a good sign. For the good of our own souls, we ought to read all of the warning passages and meditate on these warnings carefully and slowly. So claim the clear, plain, wonderful promises about the saints' perseverance. Yes, but please, please, please heed the sobering warnings in the Bible about false assurance and about drifting away. I hope that you can sing without crossing your fingers, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. So Mount Free Church, beware the very real danger of experiencing the power of God without exalting in the person of Christ. You can be mistaken. You can be misled about where you stand with regard to saving faith in Christ. As I say to my kids often, just because I'm standing in a garage, that doesn't make me a car. Right? Just because I'm in a sanctuary of an evangelical church building, that doesn't make me a Christian. Even if I said I've been one for a long time, Final point today. True union and communion with Christ display themselves when we are hearers and doers of the Word of God. 
True union and communion with Christ display themselves when we are hearers and doers of the Word of God. Now, we could stop the sermon right here and pick up the text next week, but two realities prevent me from doing that. The first is in verse 27. It's the phrase, as he said these things. As he said what things? As he said the things he said in verses 17 to 26. And the second reason that we're going to take a look at verses 27 and 28 right now is that we just need them. We need the practical encouragement. After a warning point, we need an encouraging point. We need a, we need a show me the way ahead point. We need to end the sermon on this. So let's look once more, this time at the final two verses of our text. It's Luke chapter 11, verses 27 and 28. As he said these things, as Jesus said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice. And by the way, this is risky. You don't, you don't do this in the first century if you're not a man. This was risky. She raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. In verse 27, the woman in the midst of the crowd raises her voice. Says to Jesus, Blessed is the womb that bore you, the breast at which you nursed. First of all, notice that this woman's speech is blessing. It's a benediction. This is what we call a benediction. In fact, Jesus and this unidentified woman are going to exchange benedictions here, aren't they? That's interesting. We'll get to Jesus' benediction in a moment. But here in verse 27, this woman's blessing, while bestowed upon Jesus, is actually for the sake of Jesus' mother, Mary. Now, we don't know if this gal knew Mary, but what she did know is that Jesus is a man of great power and he is serving people in bondage with that power and so she comes to the conclusion his mother must be blessed. And she's right. Back in chapter 1, verse 42, Elizabeth tells Mary, Blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And again, chapter 1, verse 48, in her song of praise known as the Magnificat, Mary says, from now on, all generations will call me what? Blessed. Blessed. She's blessed simply by bearing and raising the Messiah. Apart from any active faith on Mary's part, she was blessed. God just blessed the heck out of her. And this benediction holds true. Nevertheless, the benediction that Jesus pronounces in verse 28 is superior. It's superior because it comes from the Lord himself, but also because of that word rather. The woman says in verse 27, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast of which you nursed. In verse 28 we read, But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Now we've already covered the fact that this woman's benediction upon Jesus is it's legitimate. Mary, the mother of our Lord, is blessed. And yet in verse 28, Jesus is blessed rather. I think the idea here isn't so much a negation of what the woman says. It's more like, yes, but. In fact, you could translate this word, yes, but. So Jesus says, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Let's just take that benediction um, it's got two parts. Let's just squeeze every drop of blessing we can from it. But before we do that, 
notice something really precious here, and it's, it's in the way that point three is, is, is worded. I've tried to capture it here. She says, blessed is the, what? The womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. She is speaking of the most intimate union and the closest possible human communion that individuals can have. How much closer can two persons come than a pregnant mother and her child? It can't get much closer than that. How much sweeter, I know there are issues sometimes with nursing that make it not sweet, and I say this easily as a man, but how much sweeter fellowship takes place on this earth than a nursing mother and her child? So when Jesus says, blessed rather, he's raising the bar to something absolutely profound and unexpected. He's saying something very, very glorious with this verse. He is saying that the union and communion that a believer has with his Lord compared to a pregnant and nursing mother has with a child exceeds that. Your union with Jesus is stronger than a union that a baby has in in the womb of the mother. And your communion with Jesus is sweeter than that of an infant with his or her mother. And so in verse 28, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Now both are essential, hearing and keeping. We cannot keep what we do not hear. There's a lot of noise in our lives these days, aren't there? From television to radio to internet to, is there a game later today? I can't remember. Right? Minneapolis is going gaga over this thing. And I'm just asking you, how's it going listening to the Word of God this weekend? Are you hearing His Word? When's the last time you sat with all of the electronics off and you simply read the Bible slowly out loud with no one there? When's the last time you took a single verse or a promise or a truth or a word along with you and simply meditate on it day and night? When's the last time you sat down with all the electronics off and read a Christian book other than the Bible? A good, solid teaching resource of some kind that you could search and savor and help you to grow. When's the last time? As I said uh, about a year ago, I remember preaching and I remember saying, remember books? Remember books? Yeah, those are good. So are you hearing the Word of God? What disciplines are in place in your life in order to expose yourself to the whole counsel of God? You ask, what's the big deal? The answer is that Jesus says, the blessed are those who hear the Word of God. Now, full disclosure, according to verse 28, it's not simply those who hear the Word of God. Instead, it's blessed are those who hear the Word of God and keep it. Oh, those last three words are crucial. And keep it. Blessed are those who hear the Word of God and keep it. It's been a major theme in Luke's gospel to this point. Luke 6, 46 to 49, Jesus says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord? And do not do what I tell you. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he's like. He's like a man building his house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, and by the way, it does. If it's not in your life right now, it's coming. When a flood arose, The stream broke against the house and it could not shake it because it had been well built. Or like we like to say in this church, in calm weather, mend your sails. 
Luke 8, 15, Jesus explains the fourth soil in a parable of the sower where he says, as for that in the good soil, they are those who hearing the word hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. Not long after that, just six verses later, Luke 8, 21, Jesus says, my mother and my brother are those who hear the word of God and do it. And now in Luke eleven twenty eight, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. So in closing, do you, do you do this? Or does God's word simply pass through your brain like water through a pipe? Do you take it into your mouth like a lozenge? I heard John Piper say this one time, and I've got these on me, so I'm going to do this. Do you take a, a word lozenge every day and Put it under the tongue of your soul and let it dissolve. And as it dissolves, it enters into your bloodstream and it affects and impacts every single thing that you do. This is good. (laughs) How serious are you about hearing God's word and keeping it in you? Not just listening to him, obeying him. Now, before the sermon, we heard James 1, 19-25 in James 1, 23-24, he writes, If anyone's a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and he goes away and he at once forgets what he was like. You know, I, I've said it before, but I'm almost incapable of reading or hearing those verses and not thinking of Arthur Fonzarelli. Now, those who are under 30 aren't going to understand that reference. But Arthur Fonzarelli, the Fonz, was a key character in the 70s, TV show sitcom Happy Days. And Fonzie was super cool. Fonzie was Justin Timberlake, okay, in the 1970s. And there's a moment in the opening credits of that show when Fonzie is standing in front of the bathroom mirror at Al's diner, and he's just getting a look at what he sees, and he gets ready to pull out a comb, just instinctively run it through his greasy hair. And you remember what he does? He goes, eh. In other words, he's, he's not even going to wreck what he sees. It's so fantastic. Now, that's what James is talking about. That's what Jesus is talking about. Who, upon looking into a mirror, doesn't make a few changes? Are you blind? <laughs> and when looking into the mirror of the Word of God, who doesn't see a perfect reflection of what they look like and immediately realizes some changes are in order? Big time. Please don't read the Bible or listen to sermons like Fonzie looked into that mirror concluding, I'm awesome. I'm fant- All these things I've kept from my youth up, right? As the rich young ruler says to Jesus. That's part of the great commission Jesus gives us to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe, that's obey everything I've, I've commanded you. Teach them to obey everything I've commanded. So blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. So how are you, how you doing on this one? Are you hearing the word of God? Are you keeping the word of God? True union and communion with Christ display themselves and we're hearers and doers of the word of God. Well, let's review. You can be for him. You can be against him. But King Jesus allows no neutrality in your allegiance to him. If you're not prepared to idolize Jesus, be prepared to demonize him. Beware the very real danger of experiencing the power of God without exalting in the person of Christ and true union and communion with Christ display themselves when we are hearers and and doers of the word. 
It wasn't long ago uh, that I had the privilege of hosting the monthly West Tonka pastor's ministerial meeting uh, out in our fellowship hall. It's back in the fall, as I recall. And during an open time of sharing, I had an opportunity to unfold a little bit about our church's uh, mission and vision and, and ethos to the pastors who had come. And after I had finished sharing, one of our local ministers raised his hand and offered his reflection on what I just said. And he put it this way. He smiled and said, Dave, I, I get the sense that a person probably couldn't remain very comfortable in your church, like at least not, at least not for long. And I gave him a smile back and a wink as I replied, yeah, I think that's about right. Now, of course, if he meant by comfortable the comforts of the gospel, the pleasures of knowing God in Christ, the warmth of deep and rich Christian fellowship, and the contentment that comes from knowing you're forgiven and being a part of a church on mission, we got comfort to spare. Be comfortable. Be comforted. But we all know that's not what he meant. He meant that a person probably couldn't remain complacent or apathetic or laid back or lethargic in a church like this. And when you put it that way, I confess, we are guilty as charged. But I don't think that's something we ought to be particularly apologetic about. In the last of his seven letters to the churches of Asia Minor, Jesus writes to the congregation at Laodicea. And in Revelation chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, we hear Jesus say to them, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Or as he says in our text today, whoever's not with me is against me. Whoever doesn't gather with me scatters. To everyone that's within the sound of my voice this morning, this is God's message for us today. You can be for him. You can be against him. But King Jesus allows no neutrality in your allegiance to him. Let's pray.